Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Nat Cohan, a senior vice president at Environmental Defense Fund, where he leads EDF's climate program and helps to shape the organization's advocacy for environmentally effective and economically sound climate policy. EDF is one of the world's largest environmental organizations with more than 2 million members and a staff of 700 scientists, economists, policy experts, and other professionals around the world. Guided by science and economics, they tackle urgent threats with practical solutions. Nat's area of expertise includes U.S. and global climate and energy policy, the economic impact of climate change, the benefits and costs of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and the design and performance of cap-and-trade programs and other policy instruments. We cover a lot in this episode, including Nat's history, what led him to care about climate change, and what led him to EDF back in 1994. We talked about how his roles and responsibilities have evolved at EDF, from coming in as a junior analyst to ultimately leading their uh, climate programs globally. We talked about his time at Yale, what he liked about it, and what ultimately led him from teaching back to the advocacy world at EDF. Talked about his time at the White House in 2011 and 2012 as special assistant to President Obama for energy and environment in the National Economic Council and Domestic Policy Council. We also got Nat's thoughts on a number of key topics, including the role of markets versus policy, the balance of urgency and hopefulness when trying to mobilize people into action, talked about EDF's focus on pragmatism and getting stuff done, and not just what the right answer is in theory, but on making it happen in practice. We talk about EDF's bipartisan approach and the importance of anything meaningful in term, from a policy standpoint, having durability over the long term. We talk about the geopolitical landscape and the role of China and how not all countries are equal as it relates to climate change. We talk about some reasons for optimism. And finally, we talk about how Nat would allocate a big pot of money if he had one to maximize its impact on decarbonization and his advice for you and I on how to help with this wicked problem. Nat is a terrific guest and there's not many people more experienced in the climate fight than him. We cover a lot of ground here and this episode is not to be missed. So without further ado, Nat Cohan, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jason. I really appreciate you making the time. Oh, it's a pleasure. This is the second one I've done in person in a row. And I mean, in person helps so much, but as you know, both for logistics and family life and things, but also for your carbon footprint, it's just, I could travel seven days a week all over the world and it still wouldn't feel like enough. Right. No, I understand. But it's nice to do it in person and it's, it's good to be face to face on it. It helps a lot. And I was particularly excited for this one. As you know, I'm pretty new to the space. I'm only, well, I got seven months in now, but that still feels pretty new. And I come purely from the startup innovation side. And as I try to figure out how to help in this next phase of my career, I'm, I'm putting decarbonization and impact on the problem at the top of my list for how I assess. And so even if I come back around and end up in the innovation side, I feel like it's too easy in startup land to just focus on markets and dollars and returns and things. And so doing this tour and really understanding the problem in a holistic way feels really important if you truly are mission-driven. Yeah. I love the way you've talked about your your climate journey. And as I've told you, I hear in my conversations more and more over the last year than I have in the previous eight I hear people who are starting off on that same journey, whether they're coming from some other interests in in public policy, whether they're coming from business or whether they're thinking about what the next stage is that they're going to do with their lives. And I think the climate crisis and what's happening around us is getting more and more on people's minds. And I hear more and more people starting out on the journey that you're on. And I think doing this and then having these conversations and finding ways to get that out there is a terrific way of communicating some of that to, a, I think, a growing group of people who want to know what's going on, what are the solutions, and how they can help. 
it's interesting because what I hear from a lot of the insiders as I'm making the rounds is that they're excited that there's new blood coming in, fresh sets of legs, like without any preconceived notions or biases or things like that. And so they're glad to see the new energy. I feel the opposite way of like, hey, this is all new and fresh and I'm like figuring out something all new when actually it's like, hey, buddy, I had that same epiphany, but in 1982, right? And there's a lot that's happened since then. And so on the one hand, the recipe for insanity is doing the same thing again, again, expecting a different outcome. But on the other, there's just like deep institutional knowledge. And so if I come in like an idiot and think that, that I have all the answers, I feel like I'm, I'm in for a really big fall. No, I know what you're saying. I mean, I remember I've been working in this space in climate really seriously for now about a dozen years, which still makes me feel like I'm a newcomer to the space relative to a lot of folks. And I remember coming in and having that same reaction. People in 2007, when I started working on this, people would be saying, oh, well, let me tell you about what happened in 1997 or in 1992 or in 1990. And I think there is that institutional memory, but it's also good to have new people constantly coming in and bringing new ideas. And frankly, for those of us who have been working in the space, I think it's useful to step back and think about what we've done, what we've learned, what didn't go right in previous times, how we've made progress and how we can accelerate that progress. Because the biggest headline here is we're making progress, but it's not nearly fast enough. And we have to get all the new ideas and the new blood and the fresh ideas we can into the space to figure out how to accelerate that and get the solutions we know are out there, but get them into place much faster than is happening now. When did you start caring and what is it that got you to care initially? Way back. Yeah, way back. Well, when I sort of talk about how I got involved in the environmental space generally, actually I point to my grandmother. So I grew up in Palo Alto in the Bay Area. My parents were both at Stanford and my grandmother was a docent and either started the volunteer docent program or was deeply involved in it at a place called Point Lobos State Park, which is one of the most beautiful spots you can find what is a docent? A docent is like a volunteer guide. You go up to the state park and there's someone there who's sort of giving you directions, helping you find your way. Maybe they're manning the little museum or whatever it is. Anyway, so she had this incredible sense of place, but also this incredible sense of love for, for the environment, not just the California coast, but for that more broadly. And so that's really, I think, where, for me, where it started generally when I was a junior in high school, I went to a program called the Mountain School, which was a semester program on a farm, an organic farm in Vermont. All the kids spent time. It's still there. My daughter just went there last fall, loved it. But it's a program that really helps you understand, again, what connection to a place to work in and to supporting that place and supporting the farm, and but also working pretty intensively on the academics and the school and creating a community. And so as a model for thinking about sustainability, thinking about how to build community. It's a pretty amazing place. There's a lot of environmental awareness there. That was a big chunk of the mountain school. So those two things, I think, coming out were pretty formative. And then went to college, graduated from college, was deciding whether I wanted to do to go into academia, be a historian, or whether I wanted to work in the environmental field. And so I went down to Washington and basically walked around handing my resume out to all the environmental NGOs that were there and landed a kind of research assistant spot at Environmental Defense Fund in Washington. This was in 1994. And that experience, even there being there for about a year and a half at EDF as very junior, but it was just around the time when the 1990 Clean Air Act Amendment, the program that became the cap and trade program for sulfur dioxide from coal-fired power plants, we'll probably talk about that later, but this sort of landmark environmental, market-based environmental program was just getting implemented. EDF staff were totally in the center of that, in the thick of it. Not me, because I was just like a junior peon, but like these people were going around working to implement that. Meanwhile, you had Newt Gingrich and the contract on America starting, you had that polarization starting and a sense of environmental protections under threat. So that experience convinced me, this is what I wanna do. I wanna go into environmental advocacy and also go into a place that's gonna make those kind of market-based approaches, that kind of pragmatic approach front and center. Other than the tour at the White House, has it been EDF all the way through? So I went to grad school, I, I got my PhD, I came out, I taught, economics at the School of Management at Yale for 
for a number of years. I mean, I was interested in that and, and obviously loved teaching and I loved the research, but I also, what I didn't like about it was it felt too far from the policy world. And so once I got promoted, I decided that was a good time to leave. And so I left academia to come back to EDF. So when I came back into the advocacy world in 2007, it was back, back to EDF. And then, as you said, I spent a couple of years in the White House in 2011 and 2012 in the National Economic Council for President Obama. And then when I left that, I came back to EDF again. So either I love EDF or I have zero imagination. Uh, don't go anywhere else. For a while, I had a little cartoon up on my up on my door, like a New Yorker cartoon that's still one of my favorites that shows a cell block and a prison guard waiting. And there's a banner across the top that says, welcome back recidivists. And so like, I'm an EDF recidivist. I just keep coming back because I love the organization, but I haven't figured out apparently where else to land. So that's where I've been. This has sort of been my home in the environmental community and mostly since 2007. How has how you think about climate change evolved from when you first got into it all those years ago to today? When I came in in 2007, so I left Yale, came to EDF and started working right away on federal climate legislation in the US, what became the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill, or actually much more than a cap and trade bill, but became the Waxman-Markey legislation and then died in the Senate in 2010. And I will say coming from academia, of course, I was being an economist, I was totally focused on market-based the beauty and the elegance of market-based instruments and cap and trade, emissions trading, all that great stuff. And I still strongly believe that that kind of flexibility, that kind of policy design is going to be needed to get us the reductions in emissions at the scale and the pace that we need. And then we can talk about why that is, but, but I guess the experience I've had in advocacy and in government has taught me a lot about how to actually get things done in the political world, right? So while I wouldn't say I'm a political expert, I've seen enough of it that I think the way to your question, how does my thinking change? Well, I'm, I've learned a lot about how to get policy ideas like cap and trade or how to think about how to get them implemented. We haven't done that yet in the federal level, but how to get things, take them from the sort of academic world or the world of ideas and think about what they look like in the real world. Well, it's funny because so I had Pat Brown from Impossible Foods on a few weeks ago, and one of the things that he was saying is that for several years, once he uncovered that he believed this idea should exist and be deployed at massive scale for synthetic meat, that he went around to all the big companies and trade groups and everything saying, like, this needs to happen, this needs to happen, this needs to happen, and proselytizing, and... And it wasn't going anywhere. And so eventually it was like, well, if nobody's going to do it, I guess I need to do it because it needs to happen. And then he jumped in and started the company. And that's, I guess, tangentially related. It's kind of similar when you think about it's like, well, the math, the math and pragmatically and rationally. And it's like, yeah, but humans aren't rational. Politics isn't rational. And ultimately we need like stuff deployed. And so perfect is the enemy of good enough. If you just know how to get to what's the right thing, but you don't know how to get it done, then you're nowhere. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you know, when I think about one way of maybe saying this in the the world of policy advocacy, my sort of general rule is the way for advocates to be effective is to understand, I spend enough time in government to know that it's not the advocates who are making the decisions and that there's a difference between the decision makers, the policy makers, whether that's in government or you know, whether that's in the executive branch or the White House or whether that's people with voting cards in the Congress. So the role of the advocate is to figure out what problem it is that the policymaker or the member of Congress or the staffer, what problem are they trying to solve? What are they trying to deliver to their constituents? What problems are they seeing that they're trying to address and to solve? And then the goal of the advocate is to figure out how to help them solve their problems in a way that meets our advocacy goals. So how do you help? So how do you think about helping a senator from a rural state solve the issues their constituents are facing and still have that be aligned with climate policy. That's going to be different than someone from an industrial state, rest belt state, a coastal state. But the goal of the advocate is to figure out how to knit that together and help each of those people do what they need to do and solve the problems they're trying to solve for their constituents while still doing that in a way that's going to achieve the overall goals we need to have a secure climate and a prosperous planet. Is that how you describe EDF's role in the ecosystem, is the advocate? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of groups. I know you've been talking to lots of them, so it's clearly not just EDF or just any one group. But I do think what EDF brings is in that spectrum of groups, I think EDF brings a couple of things. One, a pragmatic kind of solutions-oriented approach, which is, so we often are the folks talking to the people in the center, really thinking about solutions, solutions approaches and how to make stuff that's actually going to work and get done not only in terms of how do you get to 218 votes in the House and 60 votes in the Senate or whatever it is in the States or the rest of the world that we're working, because we do work around the world, but also what's going to be pragmatic in terms of creating the right economic incentives for markets and entrepreneurs and innovators to do the things you want them to do, to make the decisions and deploy the technologies that are going to be needed. So that kind of pragmatic solutions-oriented approach, I think is one key part of EDF's DNA. I think the other part is the we are an advocacy organization and we're one that brings a fair amount of research expertise, expert background, analytical capacity. And again, there are other groups that have that same combination, but I think that's a powerful combination of harnessing that towards an advocacy goal can be pretty effective. I know you've been with the organization a long time, but if you had to kind of synthesize the trajectory you've had within the firm do you think about it in terms of tours or chapters? Like, I mean, because you said you came in as a as a junior analyst, and clearly you're not a junior analyst now. So, how has the scope of your responsibilities evolved over your history here? Yeah. So, first, back in the '90s, it was kind of right out of college, and I was a research assistant, actually working on forest issues of all things, not even on climate. And then when I came back in 2007, it was very much as an economist, as an expert, setting up a shop of policy analysts and economists who could inform what we were doing in the conversations in Capitol Hill on the Waxman-Markey legislation. So helping to kind of interpret economic models and provide policy design advice and a whole bunch of spreadsheets and data and all that analysis that could help inform our political strategy on the Hill and help inform what the staff were doing who were writing the bills and writing the legislation. And then when I came back from the White House in 2012, I did a couple of things differently. One is at that point, there was much less going on, certainly in terms of legislation in the US. There was just beginning to get up to speed what all the things the Obama administration did in the second term. But actually at EDF, that was the US side was pretty well taken care of. So I came on actually to run the global climate work, our international climate program. So that was very interesting because it wasn't a totally different experience for me. I had done some international climate work while I was in the White House, participated in the UN negotiations and so on. But it was a big shift from a focus on domestic policy. And then over the past couple of years, as we've reintegrated at EDF, reintegrated domestic climate, US climate with our global strategy, or put the two of them back together, I've kind of come back to that US piece as well. So now I'm as head of the entire climate program, I've got all of that work under me, not only on the international side, the global side, but also the US piece as well. And so that's, from a personal point of view, I can't imagine anything more fun or a better job than being able to sort of work on on how to drive change on climate policy in all the most important parts of the world and think about how all those strategies can fit together and ideally accelerate and reinforce each other. And how did that tour at the White House come about and what was your charter there? So I was in the National Economic Council. So in the White House, it's one of the policy councils in the White House. I was double-hatted or dotted line to the domestic policy council. And I also worked on the international side with the National Security Council. But my main home was the NEC. And I was the special assistant to the president for energy and environment, which is a position that had been, probably had been around for a while, certainly had been created in the Obama administration before I got there. So Larry Summers was still the NEC director at the time when he made the hiring decision. And Carol Browner was the head of the, the Office of Energy and Climate Change in the Domestic Policy Council. So they were the two principals who were making the hire. And Larry was looking for somebody who had academic background, academic credibility, but also sort of knew their way around Washington. And one of the things I said, there were already basically three people who looked like that were already working in the government, Billy Pizer in Treasury, Richard Newell at Energy and Information Administration, and my predecessor, who is Joe Aldi. So I was like, process of elimination. They're like, all right, we're looking for the one more person who has an academic background, but is working on climate policy. So I guess we'll land on that. So I landed there, ironically, 
Larry then left soon after and everybody knew he was going. So in a sense, I got the job in part because of my academic background and my academic credibility. But then I ended up working for Gene Sperling, who is the NEC director, and he and I got along very well, but I don't think he ever, he probably would not have hired me necessarily in the beginning because he wouldn't have been looking for someone with that same background. For me, it was kind of a lucky being in the right place in the right time and then having what I thought was, I still think was the best job I've ever had. And what was your charter during your time there? So it was a funny time in the administration. It was the first term, of course, 2011, 2012, but it was also just after the Democrats had lost control of the Congress. So if people think back to that, this was kind of the nadir. This was like the low point for climate policy in the U.S., at least since Bush, because you had the first two years of Obama when I was on the outside of EDF, where you're trying to pass climate legislation and Obama's going to the Copenhagen talks in 2009 and we're trying to restart kind of international negotiations. 2011, 2012 was all like Paul Ryan and people in the Congress saying that they're going to roll back regulations and stop regulations. There was going to be a freeze. Paul Ryan had his top 10 list of regulations that he was going to stop. He didn't succeed in any of that because by the way, being against clean air and clean water has never been a winning position in American politics. But it did mean that the feeling there was much more, okay, how can we get stuff done knowing we're never going to get something done in the Congress? I mean, I remember, I'm coming around a long ways to your point about what my charter was, but I remember one of the first trips I took. So I come in, basically the, the ambit is, I was the policy person in the National Economic Council responsible for energy and environmental policy. And so things that work their way up, almost anything, if you think about it, almost any energy and environmental issue has an economic angle. And so the NEC has to be involved in terms of White House policy coordination, White House analysis. And so that was sort of my role. Now, we didn't have a big team there, which is part of the point about this still being in the first term. So later in the second term of the Obama administration, many people I worked with, but also other people came in, there was a big team working on climate and energy. But when I was there, it was really just basically three, maybe four people. It was me, Heather Zeichel, who took over for Carol Browner, was Carol Browner's deputy and took over when Carol left. Dan Utek, who was Heather's deputy. There were some other people, I mean, CEQ, Jason Bordoff was at CEQ and Heather had a staff, Ali Zaidi and Phil Hernandez. The point is it was a small group. And so almost everything that happened in the administration on energy and environment came through that group. Whether it's EPA regulation, DOE standards, energy efficiency standards, decision about loan guarantees, all of that came up through a very small group of folks because the role of the White House, right, is to provide policy coordination among all the agencies and make sure everyone's on the same page, but it's also to provide policy guidance and policy leadership. And that was especially true in the Obama administration. It was very centralized, lots of focus in the administration. So that was sort of my role along with Heather and Dan and everybody else was to sort of be this conduit. Everything that was being done in the administration on energy and environment really came through us if it was at a high enough level that it was going to need the attention of the president or his deputies. And so that was the role. That was what made it so much fun because everything that we were doing in the government was something we we had an eye on. It was a pretty broad charter and that also included, as I said, some of the international stuff that happened. If this were the standard interview that I've been doing, I think we would get into your EDF work and what kind of projects your teams have been working on and how you prioritize those and stuff. I mean, we we covered some of that, at least for the US with with Suzanne. But I think that Given that your perspective is so strategic and so broad and you spent time in the advocate role and you spent time in the federal government, I feel like the most valuable use of our time is more just to to kind of have some real talk, if that's okay. Yeah, From my regular Joe seat, it seems like we just get bad news after bad news and that there's some lipstick with some like little vanity good news or rallying good news, but that overall, we're just losing this fight. I'll stop there and ask you what your perspective is and whether you agree with that statement. So you've touched on something that I've really been wrestling with. I imagine a lot of us who are in the, who are in the climate community and the advocacy community are wrestling with, which is the way I think about it is how both when I'm talking about this, when I'm out on the media or in front of audiences or donors or or even just when I'm thinking about it or writing about it online, how do you strike a balance between 
not only understanding, but expressing the urgency of the situation that we find ourselves in and how badly we are behind where we need to be if we're going to have a safe and secure climate for our, for our kids and for their kids. But balancing that sense with a sense that this is a challenge we can rise to and that we can succeed at. And so it's that balance between urgency and, and hopefulness that I think a lot about. And one reason I've been thinking about that lately is frankly, for a while, I'm someone who tends towards the hopeful part. And that's probably true of many people who are in the advocacy community. You wouldn't come in every day if you didn't have some real strong sense of hope and optimism that we could make things better. But I have been thinking lately, as you see just the clearer and clearer signs of climate impacts already around us, you see the IPCC report that was released last fall that got a huge amount of attention around just showing how bad the impacts of climate change are likely to be at one and a half degrees or two degrees of warming. We're already at one degree. So one and a half is not very far off. That's within the next couple of decades at current paces, two degrees well before the end of the century if we don't do something. So those kind of reports that show what's happening and what's in store for us, I don't think you can read those and not come away thinking we've got to amp up the urgency and a sense of urgency. But what I've, what I also worry about a little bit is that I sometimes talk about my concern that people are going to go from, they're going to go directly from complacency to despair. And what I mean by that is a year or two, three years ago, people traditionally climate change has not been something that people really care about outside the world of climate, climate advocacy. It's not attracted a lot of attention. People see it as something that's very far off and traditionally have seen it as something very far off. It's going to happen to somebody far in the future on the other side of the planet. And that kind of complacency obviously is terrible if we're going to get anything done. That's one reason why we we haven't moved as fast as we can. But it's also true that if people go from that directly to a sense of despair, well, there's nothing we can do. The world is ending in 12 years, which is sort of the one of the headlines you saw around the IPCC report. If we go from complacency directly to despair, we're also not going to solve this. So how do we find the right balance of urgency and acknowledging that we're screwed on the current path and that we are wrecking the planet and wrecking it for future generations, but also having the willingness to say, but we've got the solutions and some of them are out there that we can already see. If you look at the technologies, you look at renewable power, you look at battery storage, you look at falling costs of wind and solar, but also that we have the policy solutions. We know the kinds of things that governments need to do to get on track, not to get all the way, but we know what we need to do to get on track to make the kind of emissions reductions we need to make to save the planet, but we're not doing it. And so that's the challenge of mobilizing political will around that and striking that balance between urgency and hope is something I think about every day. I've been at this a whole lot less time than you, but even in the seven months that I've been focused on it, I find that there's a tension that I feel between patience like, hey, this isn't going to happen overnight. There's a lot of different things. And like in hindsight, we'll be able to connect the dots and see. Be good. You think of the innovations where it seems like a lot of times with entrepreneurship, it's like overnight success. They call it the 10-year overnight success story, right? And, and it's a 10-year overnight success story because it seems like it came out of nowhere, this rocket ship. And actually, there were years and years of toiling away, struggling. And it's not just that they all of a sudden like hit on one thing. It's that the whole journey was building blocks that led to that moment. And so- there's some of that here where it's like, well, there's so many different things and we're hammering it from so many different perspectives. And yeah, we don't have like the tangible gratifying progress to put our arms around and celebrate, but there's a lot of underlying foundation that's getting laid. There's another side of me that says, yo, <laughs> we are not on the path. It's like shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic and there's the iceberg and we're going to hit it and we're not trying to turn the boat, right? And so like, what are we doing? And maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't know. I'm still sorting through it, but it's very interesting for me to hear your perspective because, again, I mean, you're so much deeper in it. And you've also seen seen the cycles over a much more prolonged period. I think your point about patience is a really interesting one. And I sometimes say, climate, we have to realize that we need to be doing much more today. We should be doing much more yesterday, five years ago, 10 years ago. Like It is urgent that we do more and... Climate is a long game. And what I mean by that is we're not going to solve it tomorrow. 
We're not going to solve it overnight. We're not going to solve it in a year or five years, 10 years. We're going to be working on this problem for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's that big of a problem. And so when we think about solutions, and I'll give you an example of this in a minute, but when we think about solutions, we need to be thinking about building solutions. We need to have the patience to build solutions that are going to have impacts over that time frame, and not try to do everything by next year or by five years from now. Here's an example that's a real example. I was talking to the head of a major family foundation, talking about what I personally think is a core part of the policy solution, which is comprehensive legislation in the US Congress that puts a limit and a price on carbon pollution. Put a limit on carbon pollution and have the flexibility to allow individual firms to figure out how to get there, whether that's through a carbon fee or whether that's through an emissions trading system. There are lots of ways to do it, but it's a limit on pollution and the flexibility to get there. And you need legislation to do that. You need legislation in the U.S. Congress. Now, saying you need legislation in the U.S. Congress is always a hard thing. Right now, in the current partisan political atmosphere, it seems like it's impossible. So the point is, I was talking with a with the person from the foundation, I said, yeah, we've got, you know, I was making the case for why we need carbon, why we need to be ramping up now to put in place comprehensive climate legislation. And the response I got back was basically, yeah, I agree with you. But when I talk to my board, they say, well, gee, you know, it's going to be like at least three or four years before we get that legislation in place. It's a couple more years before it takes effect. That's like 2025, 2026. We don't have that much time. Because they had just read the IPCC report and the headlines that said the world ends in 2030. They're like, we need to do things by 2030. And that response makes me want to scream. Because if we continue to live year to year and we say, oh, we can never try to do something now that's going to pay off in five years with real systemic transformational change. We're just going to do little shit around the edges now that like makes a little bit of a difference in the next 12 months or that we can see happening in the next two years, but we're not going to take on the big transformational systemic changes, then we're going to lose. And so this gets back to your point about patience. We have to have the balance and it's very hard to strike. We have to feel that sense of urgency and the sense that we are way behind where we need to be. And we should have, we're not talking about doing stuff now that we should have done 20 years ago. And we have to have the patience and the foresight to understand that if we're going to tackle this, it's going to be through changes in policy and markets in behavior that are really transformational and that some of those are going to take time to put in place and we need to have the patience to go after those big ideas and get them done. That's definitely how I think about it and some of these arguments about we need to deploy what we've got or we need breakthrough stuff. It's always like you have to choose and I know very little about portfolio management in the finance world. But one thing I know about portfolio management in the finance world is that if you manage a $100 billion pension fund or something like that, it's not all going to go into venture capital and it's not all going to go into the S&P. It's going to be diversified and you're going to have like a core bread and butter that's predictable and safe and maybe income generating and whatever. And then you're going to have an alternative bucket that's maybe doing the riskier, more speculative stuff. And there's place for all of it. It's not squabbling about it's this or that. It's just about the percentages of allocation, but we need it all. I mean, I think that's right. And you can look at that across the board. So you mentioned, do we deploy things that we have now versus develop breakthrough technologies? The answer is yes. We do both of those, right? We have to do both of those. We have lots of technology we can deploy now. We should be deploying them at scale. We should be having policies in place that create economic incentives to do that. And we should be doubling, tripling the R&D budget and promoting private investment as well into new technologies. Same thing people fight about, should we have carbon tax or cap and trade system versus energy efficiency standards, car standards? Yes. Yes. We need them all, right? We need them all. And I think some of the temptation to have that debate Part of that is, you know, everyone wants to have the right solution. There's always a temptation. There's also, frankly, the advocacy world. You're raising money. You're trying to show that your idea is a great one. And there's just a natural temptation to sort of talk about all the stuff you're doing. But the reality is we're going to need it all. And I think finding ways to talk about that and to embrace that idea is an important part of getting to that whole portfolio, as you say, of solutions. 
there's another way that I find that my perspective has been evolving where when I started down this path, I think I had, it's probably come from my venture capital backed startup roots where it's like everything's got to be a home run swing. And I think what I'm coming around to is that, well, at the time the perspective was like, we don't, you know, we don't have time. You, you, I mean, you hear like Breakthrough Energy Ventures with their gigaton. It's got to be a gigaton or it, not that it doesn't matter, but it's not like worthy of their time and attention, right? It's like these big, bold. And so it's like, okay, there's a place for that, but there's also a place for just a local sustainable farm. Or if you look at the percentage of people that are mobilized in any way, it's so low that if we just drive the percentage up and you're doing something, it could be a small thing or a big thing or a moonshot or whatever. But maybe if we just focus on that percentage, that's the most effective thing we could do. I think there's a lot of truth to that in the sense that we were just saying you need both the current technologies and the breakthroughs. We need to be doing small scale, individual level behavioral changes, and we need to be thinking about the big home runs that will be transformational changes. The one thing I will say where there is a potential conflict, and this is the toughest part of advocacy on policy side, is when we're talking about specifically about policy advocacy, it's just part of the broader portfolio. But there are times in policy advocacy when a window opens and the danger that I'm worried about or the concern I have is that we will settle for less than we can get because we're not ambitious enough when that window opens. And I'll give you an example. Just recently, early this spring, as something EDF was involved in, not me personally, but some of my colleagues and many other groups were involved in, Colorado governor, Colorado legislature passed into law the most ambitious climate targets of any state in the lower 48. So Colorado became the first state to put into law a statutory requirement that they will cut emissions 80% below 2005 levels by 2050. And the governor Polis signed it. Now that was much more ambitious than many people thought going into the legislative session that they could get. And there were a lot of voices, even in the environmental community saying, no, let's not go for that. That's really, let's stick to renewable energy standard in the power sector. Let's go for less ambitious targets. And if we had done that, we would have missed a huge opportunity, which instead we were able to get. And we were able to get it because of the leadership and the vision of the four leaders in the Colorado legislature who drove it and the, some of the advocates who made that happen. But I will say that came across as an example of these windows of opportunity. They don't just open. They were crowbarred open by lots of advocates throughout Colorado for years on the political side, getting the right people elected in the legislatures, getting these ideas on the table. But when you have that open, when that window opens, we need to be ready with bold, ambitious ideas so we don't fritter those opportunities away on half measures. And that's the only place where I'll say you do need sometimes to swing for the fences because we are going to need some home runs to extend that analogy if we're going to solve this. Oh, and I absolutely think that you should swing for the fences. I think the thing that I was maybe skeptical of, my opinion is still forming, but Things, for example, that aren't going to be big movers of the math if you just look at first order impact. So, for example, services that help people improve their personal carbon footprint, right? You look at that and it's like, well, in terms of the math, like we don't have that kind of time. And I came in hugely skeptical. While I'm still probably skeptical from a business standpoint, where I've been persuaded in some way is that getting more people to care will make them aware. Once they're aware, it's a foot in the door. They're more inclined to vote for someone that runs on a climate-focused platform. They're more inclined to pressure their employer to do better as it relates to climate, not just with their actions, but to be advocates of their peer group as well. They'll be more inclined. So it's it's more those like second and third order effects that maybe are under almost like brand. It's like when you build brand, you can't measure it like if you run a Facebook ad or something, right? But it's got longer term payback that is intangible, but important. And it's like, well, how do you know? And to some respect, it's like a leap that you take because you believe in the power of brand, right? You asked earlier, how has my thinking changed and evolved? And I probably would put more weight now for all the reasons you're saying on individual action than when I was teaching economics in academia and thinking like, well, this is a collective action problem, so nobody can possibly solve this on their own, which is all true. And you want to build awareness, as you say, you want to build a movement, you want to build people to care about this. The one thing I'll say, and I, I say this with the important grain of salt that I am not 
by no means a social psychologist or behavioral psychologist. I try to consume some of that literature. I have seen interesting findings or I've heard interesting findings that suggest that there are some things you can do that you think might build awareness and engagement, but actually backfire because the human brain is a funny thing, right? So I was at a talk the other day and people were talking about media and, and climate and someone brought up a study again. I'm, this is like third hand and I'm probably going to butcher the study, but it gets the gist, which is there's been some studies going that even if somebody watch a movie about climate change, they'll be less inclined, you know, if you ask them on a survey or whatever afterwards to act or to take a concrete step because they feel like the brain is like, yeah, did that check. I care about this. I'm a good person. I watched the movie and now I'm going to move on. So finding ways to your point, I'm sure there are ways and there are people smarter than I on this stuff that know how to have that ladder of engagement. That's critical. But the funny thing is there are some ways where you can end up people sort of check the box on this. So how do you do that in a way that actually gets people more engaged, that seems to me to be the critical issue. I'm CEO of like an industrial processes company and we're huge emitters, but it's okay. I don't need to deal with it because I drive a Tesla. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Don't get me started on plastic straws. Like, well, I don't use a plastic straw so I can drive home from the Starbucks in my giant SUV. So we've talked about how we need it all and more shots on goal and moving the percentage and the second and third order effects. But I get the sense from you that there are some kind of hammer things that it could have outsized returns relative to anything else we could do. Is that true? Yes. What are they? I think in terms of policy. And so the way I like to talk about this is, and this does go back a little bit to how we think about our strategy here at EDF, which is identify the biggest emitters, the biggest sources of emitters in the world, the biggest countries that are emitting, and then think about a transformational change that could happen that will fundamentally shift the trajectory of those of those emitters. So for example, take China, right? So any discussion of climate has to start with China, or at least it has to be China and the US gotta be the two clearly, I think, most important emitters out there, both because they're the biggest emitters, also because they're the dominant economies in the world. China right now is the biggest emitter in the world. I think if it's not yet twice the U.S., it's getting there. As an aside, when I started working on this issue, the U.S. was still the largest emitter, and that was only 12 years ago. I remember people saying, yeah, at some point, China's going to pass the U.S. as the world's large. Oh, oh, you know what? We just looked at the numbers again. That happened last year. In other words, like China passed the U.S. as the world's largest emitter, basically, before people even had caught up to that fact. But not per person, though, Not right? per person. No, not at all. No, that's right. Although China now has per capita emissions around the same as France. The French could say, well, look at that. We have low per capita emissions. I think we'd say, wow, China's per capita emissions, no longer that low. But the point is, you look at China, for example. So you've got to tackle China if we're going to tackle climate change. Again, there's no one silver bullet. But one thing that could be transformational, to give you an example, is if China were able to use the kind of flexible market-based mechanism that the EU is using, that California is using, if China could implement an emissions trading program that capped its emissions from its entire economy and then drove that cap down, if China, instead of talking about, well, maybe we'll peak and then we'll plateau, but if China was talking about how to drive emissions down by 20, 30, 40, 50% by the middle of the century and doing that in a way that had that flexibility to get the deepest cuts fastest wherever it made the most sense, that would be a critical, huge step, multiple gigatons in terms of the solution. And China's in the process of doing that. They are in the process at the provincial level. They got seven cities and provinces that have put cap and trade programs into place. They're putting a national cap and trade program in place for the power sector that's going to launch next year. Now, I'll tell you, when it launches next year, it's not going to be everything we want. It's actually just going to be a carbon market. It's not going to have a top-down cap, so it's not going to have a firm limit. It's going to be bottom-up, built from the facilities, just going to be the power sector. This is part of what I mean about like a long game. If we can get that institution in place and then start strengthening it, making it robust over time, maybe by 2025, we have a firm cap over multiple industries. And then by 2030, we're talking about really driving down emissions. That would be transformational. And so that's one example. I could tell you others in tropical forests and the US and elsewhere, maybe we'll have time to do that. But the point is, for my money, and of course, I'm an economist, so of course, I'm going to say this. But for my money, what a critical part of the solution is going to be ambitious policies at scale, at economy-wide and the world's major economies that put a enforceable limit on pollution and then create the flexibility 
whether it's through a market mechanism or something else, create the flexibility to meet that limit in the fastest, cheapest possible way and get the cuts when whatever sector is going to be able to do them quickest. We're going to need those kind of policies, those kind of economic incentives if we're going to succeed. And when you say cap versus something like a tax, how much of that is driven by the substance of one versus the other versus what you think can get through politically? I'm just talking about the substance. And I'm not even talking about specific policy mechanisms right now. Like if I really boil it down, so I don't think we've ever solved a pollution problem. And people will say with some justification, climate's not just a pollution problem, it's much deeper. But it fundamentally is pollution that we're talking about. I don't think we've ever solved a pollution problem without an enforceable limit that declines over time. So fundamentally, this isn't just about making something more expensive. This is about putting less of it into the air. I mean, really boil it down. How are we going to solve this? We're going to solve this by not putting pollution into the air. That's how we're going to solve it. How are we going to get to that point? Well, a pretty important part of that in policy is to put a limit in place and that limit declines over time to net zero. Now, how you implement that limit, how you achieve that, you've got to have some flexibility. A carbon tax can come in there. You can have a carbon tax that's wedded to that limit. You can have the trading scheme of a emissions trading program. You can have hybrid approaches. You can have other things. But to me, if you really boil it down, it's a limit on carbon pollution and a flexible mechanism to achieve that limit. And what I mean by flexible is if you, if you have a limit on pollution and then you say, okay, every facility in the world, every power sector or in a country, every power sector, every steel mill, every concrete, every concrete mill factory, if you say every facility has to do the same thing, that's going to be enormously expensive. We're never going to get that done. So you have to have a system that allows flexibility. If, if this power plant can cut much more quickly than that one, great. That's what we want. Have some ability for the power plants or the factories or the emitters that can do more sooner, cheaper, faster, give them incentives to do that, but make sure that the total amount is going down. That's what we need. And there are lots of ways to do that. We got hung up 10 or 12 years ago, and I was part of this. We got really hung up on, is it cap and trade versus tax? Let's debate that. We shouldn't be debating those things. We should be figuring out what all the possibilities are for how we could do what I just did what I just talked about, how we could get a limit in place with the flexibility. And then whatever one of those ways works, that's great. If you're advocating for China to do something, is it advocating to the Chinese government directly or is it advocating to the U.S. government to then advocate to the Chinese government? Yeah, it's really both of those because, so the way I think about this is any good advocacy starts with understanding the problems of the decision makers that you're trying to influence, right? So what are the drivers for China why is it putting in place this emissions trading system? Why is it starting to care about its carbon emissions at all? Well, there's a couple of main drivers. The big one is air quality in China is terrible. It's getting a little better because the Chinese government is improving it, but Beijing five or 10 years ago is one of the most polluted cities on the planet. You have kids dying of asthma. You, you have people with measurably shorter lives because of air pollution, not just Beijing, but throughout the country. That accompanied the rise in industry, the rise in economic growth, because that was all coal-fired. That was all powered by coal. And so the number one reason the Chinese government cares about this is because air quality is so bad that their population is demanding cleaner air. And one great way to get cleaner air is going to be to cut coal-fired power plants and that sort of thing. And that also helps out with climate. So climate policy can be a means of achieving the goal of cleaner air. But there are others as well. The Chinese government has figured out that this is the direction the world is going. In terms of Europe, eventually the U.S. will get there in terms of China, other parts that, in other words, at some point, we're going to have to mobilize at a much bigger scale. And that means huge demand for clean energy technologies, wind and solar and so on. We're already seeing that on solar. And the Chinese government figured out, well, this is an economic opportunity for us. So let's invest the hell out of building solar panels and becoming leaders on clean energy. And they're making huge investments into electric vehicles and battery storage and so on as a bet on the direction the world economy is going. So that's another driver of climate policy because if they can have policies in place that support a domestic market for those things, that helps them with that economic, that economic policy. And then the third thing is international pressure. China wants to be seen, just like every great country wants to be seen, as a leader, as a global leader, as a genuine global power. 
And certainly under the Obama administration, the price of entry into the club of great nations was action on climate change. And that was very effective. That's part of what got the Chinese to the table and part of what made the Paris Agreement of 2015 succeed was the Chinese saw this as important. You don't have that now with Trump. <laughs> okay, we're going the other direction. But I think to your point, if we're going to continue to drive China forward, those first two drivers, air quality and their sense of demand for technologies are going to remain, but we're going to need an American administration. We're going to need a U.S. administration that is once again willing to lead on, on climate and put pressure on China. But once you have those drivers in place, by the way, then, then it's working with the Chinese government on the design of the policy and the implementation of it. But I think what I'm hearing from you is that you'll just focus on the substance and then that stuff will work itself out over time. But meanwhile, the substance will be there for when we have the political will. So from an advocacy point of view, my colleagues in Beijing are working with the Chinese government, with the provinces I mentioned, but with the national government as well, to design and implement an effective emissions trading program. So we are in there in the trenches on the policy and the substance. And in the US side, when we think about, okay, what does our US advocacy look like going forward three, five years? Part of that US advocacy is how do we create a dynamic in the U.S. so that the U.S. administration wants to be a leader again and therefore will keep creating that pressure on the Chinese to do more. It's an iterative approach. Obama got the Chinese to commit to do more in Paris. They're now implementing that. Now we need the next administration to step up its leadership and in turn put more pressure on the Chinese to do more. And that can play back into the U.S. and getting the U.S. to do more because if China's acting, then the U.S. doesn't have that excuse that China's not doing anything. So it is an iterative thing. And to your answer, we're thinking about both the substance of the policy, especially in China, but also the global diplomacy of this and how to mobilize American leadership on it, which is going to be so critical to the overall dynamic. Do you think that as it relates to federal policy, that it's possible to find common ground with certain climate-focused issues to bring about any kind of meaningful change? I've got to say, I think I've written off this administration. And I imagine pretty much everybody in the climate community did. If they, if they didn't win when Scott Pruitt was appointed EPA administrator, they certainly did after Trump's Rose Garden speech in 2017 when he said he was pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. I think it's very clear that this administration, this president has no interest in addressing the crisis of climate change and frankly doesn't have much interest in serving America's interests more broadly. But that is to a large degree, that's about this particular administration. I do believe that there are voices, especially newer generation have voices in the Republican party, but also some, some folks who have been in the Senate for a long time. I do think there are voices in the Republican Party who see the urgency, see the need, believe this is a real existential threat to the planet, but also believe this is an economic opportunity for the U.S. and an opportunity for American prosperity and economic growth. And so I do think there are Republican voices that if we have a different administration and maybe different leadership in the Senate, that we can find common ground and bipartisan action on climate. I'll just say in 2008, which seems like a lifetime ago, you had both candidates for the presidency calling for strong, comprehensive legislation for climate change with cap-and-trade programs that would cut emissions 80% below 2005 levels by 2050. So you had both presidential candidates calling for strong climate policy as recently as 2008. So I don't think it's impossible to get back to that point. That's something that I've been wrestling with that, I mean, I don't know if I can ask you this on the pod, so just tell me if I can't, but given two choices, someone that has the strongest climate position that's a Democrat and someone that has the best odds of beating Trump, who doesn't have the strongest climate position, then it feels like maybe the best thing to do if you're concerned about climate change is to go with whatever's going to have the highest likelihood of getting that guy out of office. That's true, not only for climate, but for all those other issues. So from a personal point of view, it's about how do you get somebody who can, who can win, right? Again, I don't think that's incompatible with voting, voting your issue. I mean, what I would love to see, and we're starting to see it, we're starting to see signs. If you look at polls, you're starting to see climate climbing to the top of the list for Democratic primary voters. That has never happened before. So what I'd like to see is that voters of all stripes, vote climate as their issue. 
I do think if we're really going to get change in this country, we need to get to the point where more and more and more voters are voting on climate on both sides of the aisle, by the way. So both Republicans and Democrats, we're starting to see that in the Democratic Party. If you just look at the polling data, that's never happened before. Climate has always been buried way down the list. We need that to happen more broadly. But that to me is one of the brightest glimmers of optimism or of hope is that if people really start voting climate as an issue, then maybe we'll start mobilizing the political will in the Congress that we need. So to enact meaningful climate legislation, in your view, does it require bipartisan support? In my view, yes. As you will see, I'm sure you probably already had this conversation or you certainly will with others. I mean, this is a split in the climate community right now. It's a big split. There are some people who think that the Republican Party is irretrievably lost and that people like me who talk about bipartisan approaches are hopelessly naive. We're never going back to the glory days of the 1990 Clean Air Act Amendment, which was bipartisan and blah, 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 blah. And so there are some people, and I understand their views. There are some people, some of the people I've suggested you talk to will say, you know what? That's just hopelessly naive. This has got to be party line the way that healthcare was party line. And we got to figure out how to either get 60 Democrats in the Senate or do reconciliation 51. That's not my view for two reasons. Number one, because again, go back to this point I raised that climate is a long game. It's a long game in all the sense that we were talking about before, but it's also a long game in the sense that it's going to require making long-lived investments. Major capital investments need to be made on a low-carbon pathway in power sector and industry and all the sector, steel, cement, and buildings and everything else. So we need durable signals, durable policy signals, lasting policy for people to be willing to make those 20, 30, 40 year investments and make them in a low carbon direction. And that puts in a particular premium on making sure that whatever we get is lasting and durable and everyone sees it that way. And so if you look at what's happened to healthcare since Obamacare passed, since the ACA passed, you know, it's been perennially under threat, then the Republicans do this, then there's an attack, then they do this, and the states do this, that state do it. Is it up? It's down. This, we're depending on the Supreme Court. It hasn't been a, really a ping pong game because the ACA was strong enough that the core is still intact, but it's been in perpetual doubt since it was passed in 2010. And if we have that for climate, if we pass legislation on climate change and 10 years later, it's still up in the air, whether that's, whether that's going to hold, then that's a failure. And so that's fundamentally why I think we need to be aiming for bipartisan support because I think we need durable policy. And the way I think we get there is by having some form of bipartisan support. I'm not saying it's going to be even. Nobody's saying that, that you're going to get 50 Republican votes, at least not the way that the Senate is currently constructed. But I do think we need to be going for bipartisan support. And I think we have champions in the Republican Party who could be part of that conversation if we approach it the right way. So switching gears, and we are winding down, you know, I've kept you for quite a while, but if, if you had a big pot of money, let's say $100 billion, and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact on the climate fight, where would it go? How would you allocate it? First of all, I think we need a redoubled, concerted effort to mobilize political will and social concern and awareness around this issue in the major emitters of the world and to do so in a way where the call to action is voting and the call to action is driving political change. And I think a campaign to do that would be a top priority to really catalyze not just awareness, but mobilization in China, the US, India, which is a future enormous emitter, the EU, and maybe Brazil or tropical forest sector generally. So that I think would be a priority. That's not a hundred billion. That's if you gave me a couple billion, I think I could put that together. I do think that kind of advocacy and tied to policy advocacy, but really mobilizing political will to accelerate change. I think that's important. Another piece that I think is important. And by the way, I think if you get those policies in place, that's what is going to transform the economic incentives that, that companies face, that entrepreneurs that innovators face, that's going to transform the economic incentives that are shaping markets. I'm a big believer in market forces being the most powerful force we have, but they respond to policy. And so we need to put the policies in place to create those economic incentives. And I think that would be one of the most powerful things we could do. I think the other thing that has been long 
ignored and that you could get a big dent into with a big chunk of that hundred billion is real research, real ramping up effort in innovation into clean breakthrough energy technologies. So again, like we said before, it's not the only thing, but we know we're going to need dramatic improvement in technologies if we're going to get all the way to where we need to go to net zero by, let's say, the first 2050 in the US and soon thereafter globally. And some of those breakthrough technologies are things like radically improved battery storage that could make wide-scale renewables integrated into the grid in a much bigger way. I'm sure there are a billion other technologies that people are working on, electrification, vehicles, and so on. A big one is negative emissions technologies, direct air capture I know we're going to be talking with a guy from Carbon Engineering. This is something that's just come on the radar in the last couple of years, and I think we need to begin to understand that, as we say, as part of Plan A, not part of Plan B. Direct air capture, other negative emissions technologies are going to be critical if we're going to make the math work. We can't make the math work without, I don't think we can make the math work to get the emissions reductions, get to net zero as fast as we need to without being able to take carbon out of the air. And I think we're getting close to that happening. So that's an important piece too. So in those breakthrough technologies, that would be an important piece. And then if I have a little bit more of the 100 billion left over, I do think there's scope while we're getting the social mobilization ready to to mobilize the policies that are going to be truly transformational. I take a little bit of that 100 billion and protect the world's tropical forests, which is one of the most immediate opportunities we have now to reduce emissions and conserve carbon. And then I would take few billion and create funds to radically ramp up deployment of clean energy. So I think with $100 billion, you could do a fair amount of good. Amazing. And gosh, I feel like we could have a whole episode on any one of those things. So last question is, our audience, a lot of them are people that might be coming from different perspectives, but what they share in common is that they care about climate change and they're looking to better understand uh, the scope of the problem and nature of the problem and how to help. So I guess speaking to them, whether it's uh, someone who's got a career doing something different and is just looking to better understand the issue, maybe for when they go to the polls or an entrepreneur like me looking to maybe start a company, what message do you have for those people? And you can take that as one message, or if you want to take it by segment, that's fine too. I guess I would have two levels of message, right? So I do think, as I said in the beginning of our conversation, there are more and more people that I talk to that are on the journey you're on, Jason, who are thinking about maybe a different phase of their lives. Maybe they've had a lot of success in another area. Maybe they're just looking to do something different. Maybe they're fortunate enough to, to have resources and they can open up a new phase of their lives, whatever it is. And I talk to more and more of those people who are thinking about how to make climate the focus of their efforts. And I think that is critical if we're going to win. I think if we're going to win on climate, we need more people into the fight in a significant way. There's not going to be everybody. That's going to be my second tier. But in terms of people who are looking for what's the next big thing, I think tackling the climate crisis is the defining challenge of our generation. And we need all the help we can, whether that's a new tech startup that's going to help with some climate technology or some data thing on climate or whatever it is, or whether that's investing resources in advocacy or in research or, or in new clean technologies, whether that's investing, building an investment fund for deployment or whatever it is, there are lots of ways that people with time or resources and, and dedication can get involved that I think are going to be critical. Now then to the rest of folks who are saying, hold on a minute, I'm not I'm not ready to quit my job and join the climate fight, or I'm not in a position to do that. I guess the things I say are two things that are pretty easy to do or ought to be. One is vote climate. Vote climate. It doesn't have to be the only thing, but if we get people in this country and then in other countries that have democracies, if we get people voting climate, whatever that means for them, as we said before, both sides of the aisle, that will be the most important thing we can do to transform the political conversation because the members and candidates will respond to that. And the other piece of that, which can also help, is talk to people about climate. And I think one of the things that's really held us back in this country is that climate has gotten sucked into the polarization. I'm somebody, actually, maybe I'm living in my own bubble because I don't have friends or family who are climate deniers, but I talk to lots of people, including some of my colleagues, at EDF, who their uncle or their brother-in-law or a friend of their cousins or whoever it is, is a climate denier, or I shouldn't say a climate skeptic. 
doesn't believe this is real. They heard on Fox News that this is all bullshit. If we're going to really mobilize change in this country, we have to get beyond that. And so talking to people, explaining why you care about this issue, why you understand it to be an important issue facing our children and our grandchildren and ourselves, and getting people to open their minds about it, I think that's one of the most important things that we all can do. Great. Well, this has been amazing. Well, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Covered a lot of ground. Yeah. I've learned a lot. I think our listeners will too. So, Nat, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, Jason, thanks a lot for having me and happy to pick up this conversation anytime. <laughs> I'll be back then. All right, great. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.